Good morning. You are listening to KPOO San Francisco 89.5 and on the World Wide Web at KPOO.com. This is Prison Focus Radio. Slavery is back. In fact, it was never abolished. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution abolished slavery, except in prison. At the current rate of incarceration, by the year 2010, the majority of all African-American men between 18 and 40 will be in prison. The state as their captor. It's going to take people who are willing to fight, not people who want to negotiate with the enemy. Deal with 
morning, beautiful people. Thank you so much for joining me here on Prison Focus Radio. I am your host, Nube Brown, and we are going to have a good show today. Um, well, it's another good show because the voices that we hear from are always just such an inspiration and it's just so beautiful and so moving. And um, this morning we are going to be talking with Alicia Montero. Um, she is a wife and a mother. She is the wife of Anthony, who, of course, is caged here in a California prison. But she's also going to talk a little bit about um, her work that she does um, as a uh, an advocate of a in the prisoner human rights movement. Um, and also, today you're going to hear from me. Because as you know, this show is pre-recorded, and um, the day after I spoke with Alicia Montero, I found out, or we, Malik and I, found out that he has been denied home confinement. So I would like to share with you how I feel about that. Um, So you will. And... uh, Okay, we're going to take a little turn here and let you know that KPOO is still in its fundraising time until the end of the year. So please make a donation to this fantastic radio station, KPOO San Francisco 89.5. It provides this one hour here of prison-related issues. I know of no other radio station that gives a full hour to this. And um, with humbleness, I feel so grateful that I am able to host this hour. And again, so I also want to say, please get in touch with me at newbay at sfbayview.com and let me know how you feel about the show, what you would like to hear, what you're not hearing. Um, Okay. So back to the fundraiser. Please make a donation. It's so important that this community-run station stays thriving, not just surviving, but thriving. It is very important that we keep it because, again, with much gratitude, um, I say that having this hour here and all of the beautiful music and the Saturday programs, the Sunday gospel, I mean, there's just so much to get from... um, the KPOO San Francisco 89.5. So please make a donation and you can write to KPOO at KPOO PO Box 156650 San Francisco, California 94115 or you can go to KPOO.com and make a donation there. So please do. So you can send your checks to the address or you can make a donation online big or small, everything in between. You've heard me say this before. It all matters. It's when we put in what we can together is what makes it, it makes it go. So, and especially in this time, as you can see, I mean, mutual aid is like the, one of the big, you know, buzzwords, right? It's us coming together because we really are what? The power of the people. And it's us that's going to make it happen. So please make those donations wherever you can. Um, Okay, I'm going to go ahead and we are going to get started on the show. And you'll hear some other voices as well. All right. Thank you again for joining me this morning. Oh, sorry. Want to give a big shout out to our beautiful people behind the walls. We love you, our loved ones, our community members, and your families. Okay. 
We are here for you, all right? This is your platform for your voices, your solutions, your dreams, things that you're doing. Um, so again, just a lot of a big shout out of love and solidarity to all of you. All right, we're going to get started with the show and we're going to hear from Alicia Montero first. All right, good morning, everyone. I have with me this morning Alicia Montero, and she is a wife and a mother and a, the wife of Anthony, who is on the inside. Um, so she's going to be speaking to us this morning. Good morning, Alicia. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. How are you? Great, great. Thank you so much for joining me. This is going to be wonderful. Melissa, um, um, I would love for you to start with... Um, why don't you just give us a little bit of background on um, who you are, and I would love for you to talk about, you know, what got you started um, in the prisoner human rights movement beyond your husband um, being in prison. A little bit of background about me. Um, my father actually worked for CDCR when I was a kid. That's what brought us to um, Sacramento in the first place. And he actually worked um, in the back of the room. My husband is, is housed. Um, and I remember as a kid, um, my father, you know, having, having feelings about the way the incarcerated were treated and, um, we would, um, put together gifts every year for, for the guys inside and my dad would sneak them in and, um, he was a, he was an, a welding instructor. Um, and so we had a couple of guys stay at our house after they were released when I was a kid. So this was a normal part of my life. Um, I didn't though at the time realize how um, racist and evil the system was, uh, to be quite blunt. Um, fast forward to um, a couple of years ago, uh, meeting my husband, and um, we lived in San Diego at the same time years and years ago. Um, but um, meeting him a, a few years back at the end of the, uh, 2017, um, we started talking, and um, things were great. Things were, were wonderful. Um, you know, he, he started... He had been doing a lot of work on himself, but I think um, that thing happens when someone's been down for a long time and they, they fall in love and, and they're like, you know, they're, they're ready. Um, and things were great until this pandemic hit and um, things shifted for me, for my children, for everybody on the outside. And I, I remember clearly the day that it switched. Um, I was up late, like I, I had, had been doing many, many nights when this pandemic first started and they, they shut down visiting and, and I was so worried. Um, and I was up late, I was one, late one night and I found um, the populations in all of the prisons and started, my mind just started going and, and I'm looking at these populations of almost 170% inside some of these facilities and knowing what they're saying about this virus. And I kind of went into panic mode and um, it, it started to scare me. And I had a choice of either crumbling to the fear or stepping up and doing something. And um, I wasn't willing to just let my husband sit inside while I sat out here and cried. So it was, it was time to do something. And there was this very this very recognizable change in me and um, it, it, it literally happened overnight and I uh, started attending webinars and I started attending the uh, the case management meetings with Judge Tigar who oversees the the um, Plata versus Newman case 
where they were sued for overpopulation. I started attending all of these things and taking notes and just absorbing everything that I could. And I started finding discrepancies and stuff. And I started writing letters. I wrote a letter to Judge Tygar and blasted it out. And it got out there and people were sending it in like crazy. I started sending letters to the governor and to senators and emailing journalists and newspapers because that's where does the information come from? So often it comes from these news reporters. And just if I saw something they wrote that wasn't true, I found out who they were and I wrote them. I had no problem reaching out to anybody. I got involved in protests and phone zaps and email zaps. And I started, then that turned into, it turned into this thing where I have, you know, my 40-year-old husband who is healthy and he's in a facility that's not, it's not one of these ones that has, you know, that's this huge hotspot like San Quentin was, like Kern Valley is now, like Mule Creek is right now, like so many facilities are right now. And I got my, it's not that it shifted because I'm still very concerned with my husband, about my husband, but there's people that are 80 years old, 70 years old that have been sitting in prison for decades that are sick, that need to go home, that are absolutely not a threat to society. And I went from caring about the people inside and wanting to change the inside to make them more comfortable to wanting to dismantle it completely. Everyone, every single one of them. And that's where we are today. And people, let me just say this, people hear abolitionist and defund and dismantle and they're like, what are you talking about? This is crazy. You just want to let everybody go. This is what I want. I want for people to understand that there is no healing from pain and torture. That's not, it's never going to change anything and it's never going to help anything. So that's where my goal is right now is to try to make people understand we have other countries that are doing this very, very differently and having a much better outcome. And we know this as a society. CDCR knows this. All of the other prison systems in our country know this and they ignore it. CDCR and all of the prison systems in all of the country know the recidivism rate of all of the people that they are hell-bent on keeping inside. The ones they want to keep inside are the ones that are not going to re-offend. The ones that they let out are the ones that are shown over and over again are going to re-offend. And I put that in air quotes because, again, I'm not, I don't think anyone should go to prison. But I see the very strategic way that they are letting people out that they know statistically will re-offend and then they can lock them back up. It's an evil system. And trying to explain this to the people, the masses that have been so strategically manipulated is a feat. It's hard. It's hard. I won't give up. And then on top of trying to make sure that so many people inside are okay, that they're not, you know, that the sick people trying to get them out and trying to get them care and trying to not get them transferred. 
um, into just transferred in between prisons anyway, but then there's like these retaliatory transfers going on and it's, it's really bad inside. And then on top of that, I'm really, really focused on getting my husband ready to, to go see the parole board for the fourth time. It's, it's, there's a lot of work to be done out here. It, it, yes, indeed. Wow. Well, thank you for that. I was going to ask you about uh, your husband's situation because I was wondering how that 20 years started to look because he had a different sentence. Is that, I mean, he has a sentence of seven to life. Yep. Seven to right. life. And he's already done 20 years. So once you kind of got wind of this change in you or when you got this you developed this change within yourself. Did you look at his 20 years differently as well? I I started looking. So it's funny because I I'm so I'm with um, SE Justice Group. I'm a member and I've been a member since 2018. And I have a sister in that group that we were just talking the other day and and, and um how when she first came in to the group at the same time I did in 2018, she was where I'm at now. She was you know trying to get her husband out. I was just looking for a support group of women like myself that have somebody inside, you know, and, and I, because it's very isolating. This is a very isolating life, especially mm -hmm. at first when you're not ready to tell the whole world that, that your spouse is incarcerated um, and you need to find other people or you will go crazy. So that's what it was for me at first. And for her, it was that thing of, no, I have to get him out. Um, so we didn't talk a whole lot and, um, she tells me now that, um, you know, she didn't have time for, for that. She didn't have time to sit around and, and go and laugh. This was very serious to her. And at the time I was just waiting for my husband's parole date to come up. Like, we'll just wait for that to happen and whatever happens happens. And yes, I feel very differently because yeah, we're getting him ready for parole and I'm getting all the support letters ready that he needs and, and everything that you do on the outside and he is busted butt inside to do what he needs to do and, you know, took on all these classes and is pulling good grades and has the same CO that at one point wrote him up. The two times he's been written up since he's been at the facility he's at now was by the same CO. He has that CO um, offering him support letters now. So he's doing what he needs to do um, and I'm doing what I need to do from the outside to get him ready, but I'm also... Uh, simultaneously working on, okay, so what's the next step when he gets denied? Because the truth of the matter is the parole board was set up to bring people home. You go to parole after your earliest possible release date, and as long as you haven't done anything egregious or over the top, you're going home. It's yeah. exactly opposite. Now you go before the parole board, and you're going to be denied unless you've done something spectacular and over the top to get released. Right. So I with a with a twenty percent twenty two twenty three percent approval rate, I I have to be realistic and hope and pray that it works in our favor this time, but know that it probably won't, and be ready for that next step. So yeah, I've I've taken the next steps to figure out which bills will help him and who I need to talk to, who I need to get in touch with, and. Um, I make sure that I stay on top of it because something's going to bring him home I, or I will die trying. Well, this would really be an indictment on CDC small r because if he is going up now for the fourth time, that should be, I think that this should be an indictment on CDC small r. They're not doing their job. 
because like you said, it should be, right, that when you have a parole date, you should have been gotten ready. But the system is not designed for that, as you said. It's designed to keep people inside. And um, I just say it's another, it's a vestige of, of slavery. So it's from slavery to prison. And the 13th it, Amendment, the exception clause, it really is. It really is. It really is. If it I mean, really really is. is. Right. I was just going to say that, that this life has really, I really see how um, incarceration, how synonymous it is with slavery. It's, it's the thing of, I remember when um, a couple years back, he got busted for a cell phone. And they, they knew that we had just gotten married. Um, and they immediately were going to ship you away, which is exactly what they did to slaves back in the day. Oh, you, you don't want to listen? We're going to send you away from your wife and your children. It's this emasculation of the black man that was so prevalent and, and used so, um, so often. And it's the same thing inside of CDCR. I can't speak for other, other prison um, systems. I can only speak for CDCR. It's the same type of thing. And um, there's just so many things that are in this system that are so synonymous with slavery when it first began. And it, you know, so I have, um, I'm on the IFC, the Inmate Family Council for the prison where my husband's at. I stay close to this at every angle. I want to know what's going on at all times. Um, so I stay close to it. And the, um, the IFC chair, her husband is, um, he just turned 71 years old on, uh, in November. He went up for, in front of the board for the fourth time, nine days before he turned 71. Um, he has COPD, he has asthma, he has uh, kidney cancer, and um, he got a, he, he got a, um, he had a had surgery on his leg, I think in 2013, 2014. And uh, he had the surgery on the outside hospital, came back, CDC small R did not do what they needed to do to take care of him. And um, it got infected and he ended up having to get it amputated. So he has one leg in a wheelchair with all of these ailments, 71 years old, and he was nice. And I want to understand how you justify saying that this man is a threat to society. I don't, I, I will never understand it. I don't get how you, you cause this man's leg to be chopped off. And, you know, it, I sat and I thought, started thinking about it and it reminded me of roots. It, I mean, I, when I, like, that's what it reminded me of. There's so many things synonymous with, with, with slavery when it first began. And the system is, it, people say the system is flawed. It, that's such a, but that's such yeah. an understatement. It, yeah. It's not killing people. They're killing people inside. Yeah, it's so inside, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is. I mean, especially when they're separating families. Yes. I mean, and, and especially, and now, I mean, COVID is being, can be used as, as a weapon, and it has been weaponized. Absolutely. Um, you know, for, for, for them, especially in the overcrowded, in these overcrowded conditions, lack of medical care. I mean, there is no care. There is this, we say CDC small R because the small R is 
because there is no real rehabilitation. The rehabilitation that's being done is, again, like you mentioned with your husband, the hard work that he is doing inside and the hard work that you all are doing out here, right? Only to be looking forward to a very likely denial. I really want to commend you for the work that you're doing. I mean, to be in advocacy for prisoners in general, right, knowing what it is that your husband is going through. I mean, I know that you had said that, you know, off air, that, you know, in terms of COVID, the prison that he's in is doing okay. But the reality is still, he's been in 20 years of this seven-to-life sentence. That's 13 years more than he was supposed to be inside, really. Seven years, he should have been ready for parole and be home. Right. He should have been ready. And not to mention that they put so much emphasis on this youth offender, youth offender, youth offender, and how they're really going to take into consideration, you know, that he was under the age of 25, 26, whatever it was. He was 21 years old when he committed his crime. And there's no way to put on that. There really isn't. Like, they'll listen to it, but there's no way to put on it. They're not supposed to be judging your rehabilitation now on your crime then. And there's too many stories of people not going home based on, you know, who it was that their crime was committed against. There's a lot of that. And it really shows the emphasis they place on certain lives, that some lives are more important and some are less. And it's shown every day by the way that they treat the people on the inside. And based on who they, you know, if you have, if you've hurt somebody, if you've offended somebody that is considered less than by society, you're going to go home pretty quick. You know, if you, if you, if you've offended somebody that is well known, you're not going home. You're going to stay there for life. And it's frustrating. It's really frustrating from the outside because we know that these people have done something when they were really young. And I can't speak for everyone, but I'm pretty confident in saying most of us are nothing like we were 20 years ago, 30 years ago. I mean, I know I wasn't. No, not even close. Well, myself either. And also, people are being asked to be accountable in a system that doesn't hold itself accountable as well. We know that it's racist and we know that it is, I mean, unfair is an understatement, but it is. I mean, the law is designed and the criminal label is designed for certain groups of people, black, brown, poor people. I mean, that is, that really is the reality of it. And you're living it. And I think as the people in prison are the living example of this white supremacist, racialized capitalism that we are experiencing. A hundred percent. And they get away with, they get away with, you're talking about holding accountable, they get away with so much, just manipulating the words the way they do and saying something and meaning something totally different. I've just seen it time and time and time again. It's exhausting. Well, one thing that I would love to turn this a little bit, because you said some really beautiful, positive things too. I love how you started with your dad working 
in CDCR and that he would, and he would, you know, sneak things in to, to, you know, bring some softness, bring some, some love, bring some, some care. And I, I just love that. I love, I, I love people when they do subversive things. And I love that you were brought up in that. And so I just, I, I want to bring that out. And I just wanted to say thank you to your, your father and all those people that are, that are for you and all the people that are doing that work and finding their ways to just, just bring some love to the situation. Because I think um, that, that is one of the pathways to, to make this change as well. Um, so, um, but I did want to, if you are interested um, mm-hmm. in reading that beautiful letter that your daughter wrote. A hundred percent. So, yeah, Jada's 17. This was written um, on her birthday on um, April uh, 8th. Uh, and just real quick, be- before, right before she wrote this letter, probably two weeks before, she, I was laying in bed writing, writing something, and she asked me about, um, are, can we, as just regular people, do something to change laws? And I started telling her, and I said, well, if you're really interested, and she said, yeah, look, and she pulled up a paper of all these notes she's been taking about how to get laws changed. So this is this is really close to her, and this is not her biological father. Um, her biological father has not really been around. She has seen him uh, once in the last 14 years. Um, and yeah, this is this is her dad. Anthony is her dad, um, for sure. So this is what she wrote, and I didn't know she was writing it until she brought it to me to send it off to Governor Newsom. Um, Dear Governor Newsom, hi, my name is Jada Lord, and today is my 17th birthday. More than anything, I want my dad home. He went in as a youth offender and is currently at CDCR with a sentence of seven to life. He's been locked up for 20 years, and it's past time for him to come home. Although we don't share the same blood, he's been the closest thing that me and my siblings have ever considered father. He has stepped up as our dad in more ways than any other man has. He has proven how much he has completely turned his life around, and he's ready to come home to his loving and supporting family. He is 40 years old, and he's been locked up half of his life. My siblings and I have never get gifts or cards from the person who's supposed to be our dad. Um, I just lost my place, sorry. I've seen him once in the past 12 years, and I can count on one hand how many times he's called us. That being said, Anthony has sent more cards and shown us more love from prison than our dad ever has. We love getting cards and phone calls from him, but what we would, what would be even better is getting to wake up Christmas morning with him in our home, watching us unwrap presents. I know I'm only 17 years old and you're getting tons of letters like this and I know that I'm probably not doing a good job just through a letter to show you how good of a person he is and how much he means to all of us. But I guarantee that if you were to get him home, he would never go back. Sincerely, Jada Lord. Oh. And I cry every time I read it. Oh, my God. <laughs> of course. Oh, right. Oh. Yeah, their bond is really, really tight. That is so beautiful. Yeah. We are wanting to build a community release board um, Mm -hmm. because we, like your daughter, we need to have a say. Right. And and the the parole board needs to be a community release board. We need to have a say in who's coming home and why and what's happening because um, we definitely want to support you in bringing Anthony home. just absolutely beautiful. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for sharing that. 
And one last thing before we go, um, I, I definitely want to give you uh, the opportunity, the space to either say, you know, talk about Anthony and and or, um, uh, you know, the work that you are doing, that's how people can get in touch with you and uh, be a part of the work uh, that you're doing sure. as well. I would love right. to. Yeah. So, um, well, I'll talk about both. My husband, I can't say enough about. He's, he's amazing. He's incredible. Um I, I trust him and a lot of people inside more than I trust a lot of people out here. He, he's incredible. Um, re- amazing father, amazing husband, and it is, it's time for him to come home. Um, he committed a, a crime a long, long time ago, and um, he is absolutely not a threat to anybody. Um, <clears throat> and as far as the work I'm, I'm doing, um, you can definitely find me a lot of places. Um, I have a webpage, Alicia. Uh, dash advocates a l e s h a dash advocates a d v o c a t s e s dot org. Um, I also have Twitter um, and um, Facebook, and you can also reach me at alicia dot montero m o n t e i r o at justadvocate.net. And I'll, I'd also like to say that I'm always looking for people who um, who have the the time to donate. Um, to donate their time to, to this. I'm always looking for more people right now. Um, it's just me and a couple of other people. And this is this is just daily work we do. There's always, always something to be done. And um, I'm always looking for, for people to, to help and donate time. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Alicia, for the work that you do, for your beautiful heart. Um, you're obviously just an amazing mother and wife and just person, and I'm very happy to be getting to know you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to get my story out there and get my information out there. I really appreciate it, and I just I adore you. Thank you so much. Good morning. If you are just joining us, this is KPOO San Francisco 89.5, and this is Prison Focus Radio, and I'm your host, Nube Brown. I was just in conversation with Alicia Montero. We are now going to take a musical break and we are going to come back with me sharing with you how it feels to have my my loved one my partner be denied home confinement
All right, we are back. There is something about that song that just makes me feel good, even if I don't understand the words. All right, so I wanted to share with you that the day after I spoke with Alicia Montero, uh, Malik and I found out that he had been denied home confinement. And let me be clear, I am not bemoaning my situation. There are hundreds of loved ones like me who are going through the same thing. You just heard from Alicia. You've heard from people on this show many times. But it's important that I share my experience and not try to uh, give voice to someone else's experience. And like I said, it, it, it hurts. These phrases like um, re-entry services and um, rehabilitation um, and basically so many of the lies that CDC small r continues to tell us and that this system tries to tell us um, are, are, just not, are just not true. There is no reason that anybody should be denied parole time and time again. Malik should not have been denied home confinement. There's no reason for it other than the upholding of this system of control and what's not white supremacy, it's white pathology. Um, and it's making us numb to the abuse that people are experiencing. This is genocidal. This is also denying the connection between people. This is denying family ties. This is denying humanity. And I, for one, I'm just not going to stand for it. I'm not going to buy their lies. And we are going to fight this. We are going to we are appeal it, um, talk about it. Um, and we're not going to stand down. And I don't think anybody should. And I, But I also don't believe that we are we have to commit ourselves basically is what i want to say we have to commit ourselves to a different a, a different world a different vision and that's why i'm an abolitionist and why i don't believe in prisons and why i want to burn them down and i want them to be gone now because they don't heal they don't care for they don't they don't help the situation at all we need to envision another world. We need to build another world where we are caring about one another, where our family ties, our human ties, our connections in mind, body, and spirit are the priority. How are you going to deny someone home confinement when they've passed every drug test, every random drug test? They not only have a this person, my loved one, Malik, this person that I'm in love with, that I'm trying to build a life with, not only has a job, but he has a, a beautiful job, a job that fulfills his spirit. It fulfills his passion for the work. He loves his job. It's not just an income. And he has a fiance. He has someone that he is in love with, that he is asked to, to marry him, who is, which is me, who has said yes, and you're saying no. 
you can't go home. You, you can't go to that. You have to stay here in this place where we can control you and keep an eye on you and deny you your happiness because really that's all that's going on here. This is crap. And this is what they're doing to millions of people. They're telling them, no, you can't have a life. No, you don't get to be happy. No, you don't, you don't get to, to heal and grow and find redemption and find success in your life. Even after all that you've been through, after all the years we've punished you, no, we're going to deny you again. And that's why people out here also are working to create community release boards. Because the people that are denying, are denying us, denying us, the people, our people, are ill-qualified to make these decisions. They are only there to uphold a system of control and dehumanization and exploitation and uh, of people for, for profit. But I know that we're in community together. And what I'm also trying to express here is that there are so many other people in our community that are experiencing this, this pain, this stress, for, for many not even understanding what's happening. You know, the, it, it's, it's by design that people don't know about the exception clause to the 13th Amendment. It's by design that people really don't understand this beast of a system this prison industrial slave complex because they're coming from the heart. I'm coming from the heart. You listening to me come from the heart. You have a lens of humanity. I have, you know, there, there are people inside that are embracing and uplifting our humanity, not only their own, but they're reaching out to us saying, I am here Reach me, let's reach each other. Let's create portals for our humanity. Let's operate in humanity, Ubuntu. You've heard me say that before. You know where I learned that from? I learned that from a prisoner. I'm in love with someone who was a prisoner. And they have denied him the chance to come home. And partly the reason this brings tears to my eyes is because you know the work that I'm doing with Liberate the Caged Voices. I mean, Malik is out. We are in a much better position. I mean, yes, they have denied him home confinement, and it hurts. But, with, not but, and, the campaign, it just reminds me of why we're doing the campaign, because we are talking about elders that have been denied the chance to come home after decades. I will say it again, 20, 30, 40, more than 50 years some of these people have been denied the chance to come home. 
Alicia talked about the 71-year-old Robert. There's nothing rational or logical or even justifiable by the people that they are denying to come home. And so the you know the pain that I'm that I'm experiencing is compounded by the knowledge of other people that we are that we are advocating for and in communication with. We get their letters. Malik is an amazing writer, is an amazing writer. And we knew that before he came out. And we know that's one of the reasons why he's retaliated against. And not only is that painful, that this is part of a system that we're living in, it is angering. I mean, how dare you? How dare you have this, this, this power that you only can uphold by violence and lies. So, again, I'm expressing this because this is just an example. It's painful and we're going to get through it. But people are having to go through much worse. And I don't, we shouldn't... I kind of want to take that back because I don't want to be comparing. Like, oh, my pain is more or less than yours. Denying people the opportunity to be connected and to come together is genocidal. I don't care. You can call it whatever you want. But it is. And that is what this system is about. It is dehumanizing. It's exploitive. It's destructive. It's genocidal. Now, if any of you have been listening to this show, you know what I'm talking about. And we have to be... I guess I just want us to be more free in saying what it is that's really happening. What's, and so I'm coming from my own experience. I'm not trying to make it bigger than it is. What I'm trying to do is create more space for what's really happening. Because, like I said, I mean, Malik is out for the most part. There's no reason he should be denied. And that goes the same for our elders. 17 times, Ifoma Modibo Cambon, slave named Daryl Burnett, has been denied parole. And he is one of Hundreds, hundreds of people. No, I'm going to thousands of people 
who are being denied their freedom. Denied. By people who are never held to account. This is BS. Malik's and my situation is the easy one. And they're saying no. This should piss anybody off. If you believe in human rights or see that we are experiencing a human rights crisis or that this is a continuation of a crime against humanity that is slavery and genocide of indigenous people. Okay, I am going to read a slightly edited version of a letter that uh, Malik wrote to address two uh, geo reentry services. Reentry. Hmm. Okay, from Keith Washington. The subject plea for early release to come home to home confinement and tra- um, plea for early release to home confinement. I am submitting this communique in order to cite the reasons why I feel the Federal Bureau of Prisons and Geo Group should approve my early placement in home confinement at my fiance's apartment in San Francisco, California. There are numerous points which I can cite that will bolster and substantiate my point, and I would like to list a few here. The Taylor Street Center, which is one, the Taylor Street Center, which is located at 111 Taylor Street, San Francisco, is located in an area known as the Tenderloin, which is notoriously known for its drug activity. On October 7th, 2020, I celebrated 13 years of sobriety, no drug or alcohol use, period. I have submitted to numerous drug tests since arriving at the Taylor Center, and I continue to live a drug and alcohol-free lifestyle. I do not see the logic in housing me for an extended period of time at the Taylor Center when my fiancé and I have an apartment in a nice neighborhood in San Francisco that is not a hub for drug activity. My fiancé does not drink, nor does she do drugs, and she works at the San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper as our managing editor. Two, the Taylor Street Center is a congregate setting. There is an increased chance that I may be exposed to COVID-19. This is extremely troubling as I ask that you consider the fact that my boss at the newspaper, Mrs. Mary Ratcliffe, is 81 years old and her husband, Dr. Willie Ratcliffe, is 88 years old. The last thing in the world that I want to do is to become an asymptomatic carrier of the coronavirus and infect the people I care about and love. Once again, I do not see the logic in housing me at the Taylor Street Center for an extended period of time. Thus far, for the past three months, I have gone to work, stayed clean and sober, followed all orders and requests from staff, and maintained a clear disciplinary record. Three, the Taylor Street Center houses both federal and state prisoners. The current program is set up in such a manner that does not allocate any time for federal BOP prisoners to spend any personal time with family members or significant others. Much of this is attributed to the coronavirus. Finally, I state for the record that this is the first time that in my life that I have put together such an impressive string of years clean and sober, especially when I am housed in such a drug-infested neighborhood. I do realize that I cannot run from drugs. They are everywhere. I have a wonderful opportunity here at the San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper, and I do not want my success sabotaged by prolonged placement at the Taylor Street Center. Nevertheless, I think that the U.S. Probation Office, the BOP, and GEO Group would like to see me succeed and not become another statistic. 
I pray that the BOP, as well as GEO Group, will take a close look at my unique situation and consider the points that I have cited. I firmly believe that we can come to an, to an amenable solution where everyone gets what they want. I think in the era of COVID-19, we all should err on the side of caution and place prisoners in the kinds of settings where they are least likely to contract the deadly virus, which continues to have a disproportionate negative impact on communities of color. Thank you for your time, and I look forward to hearing your response. Sincerely yours, Keith H. Washington, who is now the editor of the San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper. All right, so please stay tuned. Uh, we may be asking you to make some calls um, regarding this. But in the meantime, I do want to encourage you to call the governor at 916-445-2841 and demand the release of our elders. It is high time that they have come home. Please, in the name of humanity, call him. He works for you, not the other way around. Find any courage that you have. It's a phone call. It takes a couple of minutes, 916-445-2841, and say, I demand the release of our elders, especially those that have been, well, our elders, and yes, okay, especially those that have been in for decades past their parole dates, have suffered decades of solitary confinement. Call in the name of Ifoma Modibo Cambon. Ifoma, we love Ifoma. You can call in the name of Ifoma, okay? Join the... the the campaign. Use the hashtag liberate our caged elders. Go to our website, the campaign website, liberatecagedvoices.wixsite.com slash site. Also, call the governor, 916-445-2841. Also, make a donation to KPOO. We need this station. Go to sfbayview.com Go there, learn more, see more, hear more voices, see their writings, see what's happening in the community because they're being snatched from the community and put in prisons. Police brutality. Also, go to www.prisons.org California Prison Focus's website. In the National Dialogue we must have their voices and the voices of their families out front. They must be a major part of the dialogue around the changes that need to be made. If we don't hear from them, we are missing a major component of the, in the recipe for change. We cannot move forward in humanity without hearing the voices of the prisoners and former prisoners. It's so important. They have so much wisdom, so many ideas, so many solutions for how we need to move forward. They must be a part of the dialogue, including their families. And also, I want to thank you for being here. I want to thank you for letting me speak. I might, and you can reach me at newbay at sfbayview.com. I want your feedback about anything that you've heard. All right, beautiful people, that is our show. Thank you for being with me. I have two last things to tell you about. Please go to change.org and sign the petition 
for Kijana Tashiri Askari. I just spoke with him this morning from prison. Kijana, K-I-J-A-N-A, Tashiri, T-A-S-H-I-R-I, Askari. Please sign the petition. Also, I heard from my friend Tasha Williams, her husband, is being retaliated against because they, uh, because the San Francisco Bayview published his book. Okay, they are saying uh, they wrote him up again for the last part of his book being published in the last edition of the Bayview. This is direct retaliation and a denial of his freedom. This is what we are talking about. This is what we are advocating. This is what we are fighting against. Please stay with us. All power to the people. Get ready for work week with Steve Seltzer. Come see them, 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 come see them